Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Rich Bork, he covers all the steel in We're speculating guys. a little bit here. Yeah, we're Rich. just speculating, you know, to spitball in here. Um, boy, I never thought we'd see a deal in there. I just, I guess I wasn't expecting a deal. Uh, in the steel industry, I don't, I don't know why, but it was an interesting transaction. What is Cleveland Cliffs really looking to do here? Why are they doing this deal? Why would they like to do this deal? I think they'd like to do this deal again, like you, you touched on, it's back to the 1920s. We're, steel is cool again. Right. Let's make steel cool. Fortunately, Cleveland Cliffs, most of their plants are from the 1920s. Okay. So what they're looking for is obviously. They're looking to get exposure to Big River Steel, which is the EAF that U.S. Steel is building. All right, Big River, what's, what's EAF? EAF is electric arc furnace. Electric arc furnace. Rather than the blast furnace. Okay. That so this is newer furnace. technology to make steel. Newer technology, more flexible okay. technology, um, usually also um, non-union technology, nice. non-union run. So if you look at kind of the math, they're paying, they offer $35 a share, half cash half stock the cash portion comes to a little under four billion dollars u.s steel has 3.1 billion dollars of cash on the balance sheet in order to finish big river steel they bought they bought big river steel when it was half built three a little over three million tons a year okay they're expanding to another three million tons a year to but um, to get three million tons a year of EAF capacity is around three to four billion dollars. So if you look at it this way, we just offered fifty percent stock and four billion dollars of cash to get six, a little over six million tons of EAF capacity. That probably cost us seven eight billion to go bill. And that's basically what they're what they're bidding, right? They're, that's basically what they're bid, bidding. Um, Right, on the equity. And, but U.S. Steel apparently thinks they're worth more than that. Although they were trading for $22 a share on Friday, why do they, uh, why do they fight this? It's a, it's a decent premium. Can they get more elsewhere? I think you take the deal. You have 43% premium today. You have out, they, U.S. Steel has outlined this, what they call their best for all plan. So part of it, one, one part of it is finish building out Big River Steel. Other parts are to um, upgrade our finishing capabilities. The other part is um, they're looking to expand in electrical, electrical steels, which flow into EVs, which you, you gentlemen were talking a little bit prior. So they've outlined this plan, but it's a multi-year capital spend program. 
and we don't see the success, you know, whether it would be successful doesn't play out for a few years. Now, Paul, we've been, uh, you know, we've been invited out to see Big River. I'd love to go see that. Uh, because David Stickler came in right. here. He sat right in that chair where you're sitting, and he said, you guys should come out and check out our new plant. So I guess the issue is, I mean, I'm looking at the CapEx. I mean, for U.S. Steel, they spend, you know, a couple billion dollars a year, two and a half billion dollars a year in CapEx. Is that money going just for the new technology, or are they still putting money into some of these plants in Pittsburgh and Gary, Indiana, and Allentown. Allentown. Right. It's about two-thirds, one-third. Okay. Two-thirds for the new technology, one-third for the old technology. And the old technology is just to kind of keep it running? Try and keep it running. Wow. Correct. So the, the thing here is you, ha you have this plan to, you know, both U.S. Steel and Cliffs have been shutting down rationalizing capacity. You know, closing the old blast furnaces and things like that. That's why for environmental purposes, or just because it costs too much to run, they're not getting enough right uh, enough um, a product out of it. Really, costs too much to run. Right. And the technology, in order to reinvest in the technology, is just too expensive. Well, well, this is what Cleveland Cliffs is looking to do, essentially, right? This is what U.S. Steel is doing at Big River, and Cleveland Cliffs wants to buy that from them. Right. If you look at this, will take. The pro forma company, Clean Cliffs, probably is 93% blast furnaces today, 7% EAFs, the new technology. This would take them to 80-20. Um, beyond that, you'd say, well, gee, that seems not that big of a deal, but it gives them a lot of flexibility because one of the other things about EAFs is you can shut them off, turn them up, and turn them down a lot easier than you can with blast furnaces. By the way, who, uh, who are their competitors? Who else in this market could make a bid? Um, if, you know, U.S. Steel could be worth more? Well, you would have Nucor and Steel Dynamics, which are the two other big players in the U.S., they're 100% EAF technology. Ooh, they're already so there. So they probably don't care for the blast furnace route. Right. Um, you know, you mentioned that David Stickler built, invited you guys out to see Big River Steel. He built Big River Steel. Now he's moved on to another project, High Bar, which is a rebar plant. But David Steckler also built some of Steel Dynamics' first plant, or was it part of a group that built the first um, EAFs for Steel Dynamics? So are new steel mills in the United States being built today? Well, what's happened is Section 232 has really helped these guys. If you look at the U.S. Steel What is Section industry, 232? Section 232 was the, the Trump laws to prevent imports putting a 25 percent tariff on steel import okay. to the u.s if you look at u.s steel industry u.s steel industry historically is about 100 million tons of steel a year 80 percent is produced in the u.s 20 percent is historically imported oh, okay. with these tariffs that's made the imports a little less competitive what's happened is we've seen uh, over the last few years capacity being added in the u.s to displace the tariffs once they finally to displace the import steel once the tariffs finally go away. So that so the onshoring is actually happening oh, yes. in the steel business. Yes. Okay. Great so all right, you put these two, if you were to put these two companies together, Cleveland, Cliss, and U.S. Steel, how big would they be, kind of relative to the world order of steelmakers? It is would make China? it would make them a, a top ten in the world. Okay. Um, I don't think scale helps you at all, but. That's well, I thought uh, manufacturing scale helps. I, I learned that in business school. I know it, you went to Chicago Business School. You guys are good <laughs> with the numbers, but it's just an industry that's, um, you know, historic. You know, it costs a lot to ship. 
Right. So why would you? Why would it be cheaper to build a ton of steel in the U.S. put on a boat to somewhere else in the world? All right. So what? What's what's this deal called today? You talk to institutional investors and the the three guys in Pittsburgh that still invest in this stuff. What, what's the call here? Do I do I buy a new core? Do I buy a U.S. steel? What's what's the investment call for this group? I mean, if you kind of look at new core, new core and steel dynamics, I'll perform these these two guys by a wide margin. And that's the function of the technology that they've advanced. I, I think one function of technology and two, you've also, um, Nucor and Steel Dynamics have over the last few years been more aggressive in moving further downstream. All right, one is, other part of this deal, and I could go to Jen Re because she's the expert on antitrust. Right. What is Jen Re telling you about any antitrust here? There's going to be, I, I think there's going to be an antitrust review here. With okay. the, talking with Jen too, she was also. Um, so that's another element of you know. Another reason why I get a discount. Whether the, the deal stock. goes up. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I look at the uh, five-year performance of, as we mentioned earlier. Um, you know, U.S. Steel has returned nothing, negative one percent. But Nucor is has tripled yeah. over the last five years, wow. and and Steel Dynamics is almost there. I mean, right. they're up one hundred and seventy percent. They made money in. Steel. Steel companies? Yeah. What are the contracts that you look at for the underlying? Um, and we got ten seconds. What are the what are the steel contracts that you look at for the price? The price? Oh, yeah. if you look at um, S T A N H H C. All right. S T A. All right. We'll, we'll get into the steel business. X W is the hot rolled steel price. Oh, I got hot rolled steel. Hot price. rolled That's steel. All right, Rich Richard Bork. Thanks so much for joining us. Richard Bork covers all the steel companies and all that good stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Matt, we like talking to Dan Eyes, uh, equity analyst at Woodbush Securities. Pretty smart guy. Um, we usually learn a thing or two when we talk to him. But I don't feel the need to interrupt his vacation, particularly when his vacation is in Crete. Yeah. He's not down at the Jersey Shore. He's in Crete. <laughs> and we got a video Zoom thing going of him right here because Bloomberg Markets is simulcast on YouTube. You can go to YouTube and 
Search Bloomberg Global News. Dan, I uh, hope you're having a great time in Crete. It looks beautiful behind you. Give us a, a good sense of what you've kind of just observed just in your, your, your time over there. Yeah, no, it's great to be uh, great to be with you, Matt. I am. Um, look, I, I mean, to me, it's uh, it's it's always great food, great music. You see some, uh, you know, some obviously some maybe electric vehicles here and there, but uh, <laughs> and it's it's been a great it's been great, and uh, you know, I think it's just a good uh, sort of rest going into what's going to be an exciting fall. All right, Dan. So I'm just looking at the uh, bring you back in, into reality here. The Nasdaq 100 stock index, real tech heavy here, up 38 percent year to date. Put that stock price performance in context of what we've seen from these tech companies for the first. You know, we just got through their second quarter earnings and, and kind of the outlook for the remainder of the year. Put that into into context for us. I mean, I, I view this as just a a, a little sell off, a pause to what's going to be a rally second half of the year for tech. I think if you look at numbers. Overall, from cloud to digital media to what we're seeing across enterprise, I think we're actually it's stronger than expected. Now, granted, the stocks have run significantly. You've seen sell-offs post Apple, Microsoft, Tesla. I think it's short-lived because I think second-half numbers look conservative, and we're seeing upticks across the board. That's sort of our view going into the year end. Dan, where do you think they look most conservative? When you when you uh, were going over these earnings reports before you jumped on the uh, private jet to Crete, <laughs> where did you um, where did you think ah this is these guys are sandbagging us? I I think Microsoft is is extremely conservative. I think that's probably the one that sticks out the most relative to what we've seen. Post quarter, especially what we see from a from a channel perspective, I think cloud actually see an acceleration. We saw that with AWS. We see, I think, as with Google as well. I think overall cybersecurity that's probably the subsector that I think sandbag. I'll call it the most relative to estimates. You know, and and that's one where we actually see strength going the second half of the year. And I look at Apple. I think that's one where everything we see from a supply chain perspective is going to be strength from this iPhone 15, not just into September, but into year end. So, so that's where I, I really are, am looking, and I continue to think AI, and we're seeing that the monetization is going to be a lot sooner than expected. All right, that's kind of where I wanted to go, Dan, uh, AI, because that's been one of the, if not the driving force behind some of the performance we've seen out of these uh, the NASDAQ 100 and the big tech names. When you talk to institutional investor clients, what's kind of the 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 key question regarding AI that, that you get from them? I, I think the big question is with, with NVIDIA's guidance heard around the world last quarter, the $4 billion raise, okay, well, we're not, gonna, we're not seeing that ramp as quick across software. That, that's maybe the knee-jerk disappointment from Microsoft to maybe some of the chip names. I think that's, that's misplaced. I think this is really just the start of what I view as sort of fourth industrial revolution, almost AI gold rush playing out, a trillion dollars of incremental spend. And I just hit back at clients, you know, from everything we see next year, it's eight to 10% of budgets in terms of AI wow. versus less than 1% today. That I view is really going to be the catalyst for this tech. What I view is really the new tech bull market that's already begun to continue well into 2024. Where where uh, have markets, uh, or what have markets missed? Because NVIDIA we have all seen and uh, everyone's impressed and I think everyone, even Paul has bought some. <laughs> where, where, what, what have we overlooked? <clears throat> well, I think 
I think what's Marcus maybe missing the near term is just what a catalyst this is going to be for software. I think really it's the software. When I look at names like Salesforce, MongoDB, you look at AI names like Palantir, I think it's the second, third, fourth derivatives that maybe markets missing out here and just maybe underestimating it. Because I believe this is a 1995 moment, star of the internet, not a 1999, 2000 moment. I think that dynamic is why we see tech stocks up 15% second half of the year. Uh, Dan, you mentioned Palantir, and I know you recently initiated coverage there. Uh, not a lot of people know what Palantir is. Uh, give us just a quick description of what Palantir is uh, and, and why you like this name. Yeah, and that's one, uh, you know, CARP created Palantir really coming out of the government. You know, if you, if you look at where their success has been, that really machine learning is who's who they are. And now it's happening from a use case perspective. They probably have the most robust pure play AI platform and use cases out there. So you're seeing that across enterprise, across government. I look at it as a pure play AI play. Of course, NVIDIA, Microsoft, Google, uh, MongoDB, among others. But this is really front and center. I think it's, a, it's an undiscovered gem, in my opinion, relative to the broader AI trend. Let's get to Tesla. I want to ask you about the price cuts in China. Um, Paul brought this up already. Weren't they supposed to stop doing that? Yeah, look, we've said that here and there you could see some price cuts, but this only impacts, what, 15% of when you look at Model Y's impacted. It's really around the edges. I mean, mostly you're really not seeing price cuts across in China. Now, of course, headline, it's going to look negative. But if I look from a demand perspective, China continues to be strong. I think on track for 1.8, potentially higher in terms of million units for the year. And right now they are just, I view this as almost halftime. Of the Super Bowl, but does words, this, they're just gearing up. But does this kick off? A, does this kick off another price war, Dan, in China? I, I don't think so, because Matt, we've talked. I mean, every all the work that we've done the last two, three weeks, we think ninety-five percent of the price cuts are basically done in China in terms of that price war. I don't see this igniting the next stage of the price war, which is why we're buyers here in weakness. I think this is bark worse than bite. Hey, Dan, I was just looking at the PGEO function on the Bloomberg terminal, which gives you. A, a breakdown of the company's businesses by measure, by geography, by segment. And I'm looking at the by geography and China's now up to, you know, more than 20% of revenue for Tesla. How does Elon Musk, how does Tesla manage its relationship with such an important market like China? How do they manage it? I mean, they take a page out of the playbook from Cook and Apple because it's 10% political, 90% business. But ultimately, I mean, if you look at, you know, President Xi and in China, they look at having Tesla in terms of Giga, Shanghai, potentially a second factory as well. That's a that's a trophy case in terms of having Tesla as well as Apple there. It's a major part of production, a major part of demand. It's the hearts and lungs of the story. And that's been that tightrope, that balancing act has been one of the key successes that Musk has been able to navigate despite many worrying about the geopolitical. And I think they continue to gain share there along with Apple. I think that's a story that's going to continue to play out. But is, is, to what extent do investors or do you view their exposure to China as a, a meaningful risk? I view it as a background noise headline risk. I think they've been able to navigate that well. I think maybe some of the risk, the most of that was probably in the rearview mirror. That's still going to, you know, for here and there, just given the geopolitical, but 
you know, we view that more as an opportunity than a risk for the likes of Tesla and Apple. And that's, that continues to be our view uh, of China in terms of those stories. Just want to ask about the competition you see from GM and Ford. I was over looking at uh, Cadillac's new Escalade IQ, which is awesome, but expensive. So it's not going to compete really with anything Tesla makes other than, I guess, the X. I don't think that would be a fair fight, but... Um, are, are they going to are the are the incumbent automakers going to really bring it to Tesla in terms of affordable electric vehicles? Well, that's the key. I mean, if you look what's coming out of 313 area code, more affordable EVs. I think what Farley's doing at Ford or Mary's doing it, you know, GM, I think it's the right strategy. And it's not a zero sum game. I think they are going to really transform those companies in terms of Ford and GM. But Tesla, in terms of electric vehicles, it's still Tesla's world. Everyone else is paying rent. <laughs> and I think this is just start of this green tidal wave, $5 trillion green tidal wave that's really going to transform autos across the board from Tesla to 313 area code to Europe and, of course, China. Hey, Dan, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate you taking a few minutes out of your holiday. Dan Ives uh, from Crete. He's a managing director, senior equity analyst at Wedbush Securities. I don't know, that water behind him, is that the Aegean Sea or the Mediterranean? I mean, there's both over there. I I'm going to what's what. guess that's the med. Yeah. Both of them are pretty but good. It, it's a completely random guess, and I have no way of <laughs> I'm telling. I'm looking at my Google Maps here. It could be either. I don't know where one starts, the other one begins. I just don't see a lot but of But Crete, right off, uh, right off, I guess, the southern uh, coast there of Greece, part of Greece. Largest island and vacation spot in Greece. How about that? Uh, so Dan Ives over there getting a little R&R. Good for him. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Lots going on today, Matt, in kind of just geopolitics around the world. Uh, Argentina, they had a primary vote. Uh, I guess a populist-leaning uh, uh, person. Not just any populist. He looks like a cross between Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash. Nice. Maybe throw a little James Spader in there. Uh, <laughs> he has, I think, five or six giant dogs, nice. each one named after a different Austrian economist. Really? Or, well, I mean, like, of liberal free market economist. Okay. Uh, one of them's called Milton Friedman, I know from the Bloomberg story. And, um, I mean, there's such a great story on the terminal that if you haven't read it, I highly recommend going to uh, Bloomberg.com on the, on the computer or on your, on your comp uh, or on your terminal and checking it out because it's right. really good. And we've got big moves in uh, the currencies and uh, the bonds and the, uh, uh, the, the government bonds there in Argentina as well. So let's get the latest reporting there. Manuela Tobias, uh, she joined us. She's the economy and government reporter for Bloomberg News. Manuela, just, let's just start off by just re uh, reframing what happened in this primary and, and what has been the reaction in Argentina. Uh, Manuela is in Buenos Aires today. Hey, yeah, so yesterday it was just a complete upset. Um, Javier Milei, um, the economist you guys have been talking about, uh, outsider presidential bid, um, was not expected to get more than 20% in this uh, three-way race. There was the uh, incumbent, the main opposition bloc that everyone saw as winning, and the question Mark was around, you know, what kind of margin they, they would beat the, the incumbent by. And then Millet just 
completely surprised everyone and uh, got 30% of the vote, becoming the most voted candidates as well as the most voted uh, block. Um, and that just sent everyone into panic mode. No one was expecting this uh, on the political side and much less on the market side. Uh, this was the least likely scenario um, and, and definitely the one that was going to seem the most panic. And that's exactly what, what we're seeing today. Um, the central bank just raised its key rate from the already very high 97% to 118 whoa, whoa. and uh, devalued the the BISL, which was um, trading at two they, it's it's an officially set rate from 287 to 350 um, today. I love the quote um, from your story, Manuela. He says, remember, a different Argentina is impossible with the same people as always, with the same people that have always failed. Uh, you got to get rid of all that yes. old blood, right? I mean, it, does he really want to throw out uh, everybody who's been there? Well, does he really want to start a revolution here? That is, um, that, that's his proposal, and that's exactly why people support him, um, you know, talking to his voters. This was, um, you know, very much a, a question mark election. No one knew what was coming, and all the pollsters described it as one with high levels of apathy among voters. I mean, you know, we have inflation running at 116%. Nearly 40% of, of the population is below the poverty line. Um, things are, are, are pretty desperate here. And, you know, you need um, the, the, the thinking among his voters, which, you know, who turned out in droves, is you need someone just as crazy as the situation that, that, that we're experiencing to get us out of this mess. And, you know, that was his campaign message. He said, I'm going to blow it all up. In fact, during his um, the, the campaign closing event uh, to, to get, you know, uh, his his uh, fans riled up before coming on stage, he had a, um, uh, a videos of buildings blowing up, uh, literally, and, and people, you know, going crazy in the crowd, um, you know, before he came on and just started singing his theme song. And, you know, his 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 big uh, so yeah wait wait what, what is that what's says, the translation of that um it basically means um uh sorry i'm trying to translate in my head now uh <laughs> we, we have it at the uh, on the lead of the story um it's um well we'll, we'll get to like, that let's go liberty damn right. it right oh exactly. i see long live and, freedom you know, damn it yep exactly is the uh, translation exactly. all right so Manuela, what's the next steps That's here in argentina on this political process uh so okay so this was a primary election very different from from the primaries you guys are probably used to um where you know there's different uh different parties have their own votes this is kind of like a general because everyone all the candidates are on the ballot um and so and polls as we just went over are completely unreliable um and so this was kind of a, a thermometer of what's to come in the general uh this uh, knocked out one of the two uh, candidates in the pro-market uh, 
business coalition uh, and, you know, left the incumbent party pretty uh, knocked down. It's a historically uh, poor election for the Peronist left-wing party. So what this means is we have a an October election coming up that's a general um, in order to win that election uh, the, the winning candidate needs to get 45% of the vote or 40% with a 10 uh, percentage point um, 10, 10 points above you know the runner-up right. if we don't get to that which is looking increasingly likely with <laughs> you know this this race literally divided in three uh, we could go to a runoff which would uh, come in November. So, in November, so okay. uncertainty yeah. is, is certainly the, yes. so the, just, the ruling. So just to circle here. back to Javier Malai here, um, he, I mean, in the story, uh, we say that he's kind of radical with some far out ideas. And uh, I think the term crazy was, was thrown in there. But um, his it's, dog's it's named Milton headline. Friedman. So for those of us in this country, Manuela, Milton Friedman is um, a pretty sound thinking uh, free market capitalist economist. Like uh, what's the crazy part of Millai's, um, uh propositions here? Because it seems like I don't see anything that that far out there for, for us. Yeah. Of course. Okay, so that you know, I, th I think that's part of the nuance here, is that his his reforms, you know, the the policy ideas that he has, which is you know cutting public spending. In fact, he says you know bringing a um, a chainsaw to public spending. These are you know the kind of ideas that that market support that the pro business coalition is proposing, um, but he has um, a certain in you know eccentricity to him right. uh, we're talking about his dog this uh this dog he refers to him as his son oh and then uh, the, the the four the four kids that this dog had are his uh grandkids that 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 oldest dog uh died oh and God. he uh actually had it uh cloned he had another another dog um and was you know talking about him. Right, so I thought things were uh, again. I'm again. I'm totally understanding all of this. <laughs> I know. So. All right, Matt Manuel, you got you? a lot going on down there. Um, we're gonna look forward to some more reporting down there. But uh, a big, big uh, surprise uh, in the primary election down there, which is roiling the financial markets down uh, in Argentina. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. A hot spot to another, that being China. We got a lot of economic data coming out of China, which was, uh, or not economic data, but more just some financial data going on about the economy and some of the businesses there. Tom Orlick joins us. Chief Economist and Chief Asia Economist for Bloomberg Economics. Uh, Tom, you lived and worked in Beijing for years. You know what's going on there. Um, you know, I think 2023, people went into saying, this is going to be a good year for China. The economy's reopening. We're gonna, it's going to be a, a, a good year for China. It's not turning out to be that way. What are some of the key headwinds that we've been reading about in the last uh, couple of days? So the really big challenge for China's economy this year, uh, Paul, is what's happening in real estate. Real estate is a critically important driver of China's economic growth. It's also where households have most of their wealth. Chinese households, they haven't got a lot in stocks, they haven't got a lot in bonds. It's all in their houses. Um, and what's happening right now is there's just been massive overbuilding in the real estate sector. And as a consequence of that, we're now seeing property sales falling, property investment falling, and property prices, especially in some smaller cities, falling. Now, that was already part of the narrative in 2022. What's happening in 2023 is it's getting worse. We've now got news that Country Garden, one of China's biggest property developers, is struggling to repay its debt. And we've got some alarming signs that this is now tipping over into the financial sector. One of China's biggest trust companies struggling to make its investors whole. So uh, what happens here? I mean, if if one of their biggest trust companies starts defaulting on payments, doesn't the government just come in, take it over and make those payments in lieu of the failed company? So the strength that China still has is that the savings rate within China is really high. It's hard to take money out of the country. And if you look at not the shadow banking system, not the shadow banks like the trusts, but the banking system proper, it's all owned by the government. And what that means is that China's government has a lot of tools they can use to prevent real estate stress, even extreme real estate stress, tipping over into a financial crisis. The question is, where do they draw the line, right? Um, a trust company, even a really big trust company, is not what you would consider a core part of China's financial system. If a trust company goes down, some rich investors are going to lose some money. Um, it's going to be a bit painful for a sort of that group, but it's not going to be a trigger for a systemic crisis. The question for Beijing in the days and weeks ahead is, are they okay with big trust companies going down? If big trust companies go down, are they okay with small banks going down? If small banks go down, are they okay with city banks going down? Where do they draw the line? My instinct is the trusts, the shadow banks, they might have to get through this on their own. When we start to see problems trickling into the banking system, 
even the smaller city-level banks. That's where Beijing steps in. So, Tom, how much of a political um, headwind is this for President Xi, who just recently secured another, I don't know, I guess five-year uh, term, if not, if not more? How much of an issue is this for him politically? So China does not have elections, but China does have politics. Um, and if you're in charge of an economy with a youth unemployment rate of 20% and with prices for housing, which is where most Chinese people have stored their wealth, either flat or falling, then you've got a political problem. Um, how does that play out in a single party state? Well, the first thing to say is it plays out behind the scenes, right? If Xi's hand is weakened, that's going to be something which is evident to people in the backroom deals in Beijing. It's not going to be so evident to us here in the United States. Still, that additional political stress is an additional constraint on policymakers' room for maneuver. Tom, is there an, I know there's not an easy fix here, but is there, is there a solution that a, a lot of economists like yourself see there? Is, and if, or is this just something that the Chinese economists going to have to deal with for a long time and let it play out? So um, there's a big structural problem here, right? China has massively overbuilt its real estate sector, um, and that means there isn't an easy fix. There just has to be a period where real estate construction, real estate prices come down in order to realign supply and demand. There's no getting away from that. Um, now, what does a kind of a big fix, a kind of grand solution look like? Well, firstly, it's a grand solution which doesn't make things better. It's a grand solution which stops things tipping over into catastrophe. Um, what are the moving parts of it? Well, I think it has to combine an element of reform, an element of increased transparency, an element of increased market control, so investors think that the underlying problems here aren't going to repeat, and an element of stimulus, more significant stimulus than the government has so far been willing to put on the table. And that's, uh, we still expect that base case, that China's going to stimulate the economy? So. They're drip-feeding the stimulus, right? Yeah. We've had a mini-rate cut by the PBOC. We've had the PBOC guiding banks to move mortgage rates lower. We've had Li Chang, the premier, saying to China's cities, okay, we want you to reignite the property sector. We want you to stoke the healthy development yep. of the property sector. They need to do more. All right, Tom. Thank you very much uh, for taking a few minutes. Tom Orlick, he's the chief economist for Bloomberg Economics. Uh, he's also author of the book, Understanding China's Economic Indicators and China, The Bubble That Never Pops. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Matt, why don't you bring in our next guest and hopefully we can get the sync back on that track. All right, so my old producer, Matt Siegel, is here <laughs> for, for a few ill-fated years. He worked at Bloomberg, but then he moved on and uh, is now covering uh, crypto, running crypto coverage uh, for Van Eck. And um, we're glad to have him here in the studio to talk about all things Bitcoin uh, ETF, really, because on Friday, um, the 21 shares and ARK 
uh, ETF proposal was punted by the SEC. They, they were due to decide, I think by today was the deadline, and uh, they pushed that off. Now they've got um, even more Bitcoin proposals to decide on. One of them is BlackRock. So uh, everybody is paying attention uh, on the street. And Matt Siegel is the man to ask, what's going on at the SEC? Uh, what's going on is there's, it seems to be a political objection to a Bitcoin ETF, which is coming from the very top. President Biden, if you recall, January 2022, put out an executive order instructing all agencies to uh, use kind of maximum levels of enforcement to bring this market to heel. And the arguments against a Bitcoin ETF have become increasingly haphazard and incoherent. Uh, and now there are, there's a grayscale lawsuit against the SEC. We're expecting a, um, a decision any day on that, which could kind of reveal the illogical, um, the illogical nature of the SEC's objections. But so for now, it's a delay. No Bitcoin ETF for now. So what, what uh, you know, proponents of the SEC will say the concerns are around fraud and manipulation. And certainly there's no shortage of that in the crypto world. Not that there's any shortage of that <laughs> um, in the plain vanilla Wall Street world, but um, you've seen some firms make moves to try and alleviate those concerns, right? Including with uh, surveillance sharing agreements. Is that not far enough? Has it not gone far well, enough? Let's start with the original objection, as you note, fraud yep. and manipulation in the underlying market. Well, there are plenty of commodities like gold and silver, silver and oil where the underlying commodity trading is not regulated. But once you wrap that commodity in a vehicle uh, like an ETF, then that vehicle needs to trade on a regulated exchange. So we don't think the SEC is being consistent in how they're applying that logic. Why? What's the basis? From your understanding of this uh, decision coming down from the top from President Biden about crypto, what's the what is their side's fundamental issue? Uh, I think it's an issue of control right now, which is playing out across the political spectrum on a range of issues, not just crypto, uh, but it plays into the um, you know potential threat against the dollar as a reserve currency. Um, you know, the IMF had a blog just la last month. They say that the way to protect against the substitution of so sovereign currencies is by having legitimate institutions. And frankly, there's just an increasing number of people around the world who are doubting the legitimacy of those institutions. If BlackRock comes and says they want an ETF, aren't they going to get an ETF? It's BlackRock. Well, maybe ev eventually, uh, but the final decision on the BlackRock ETF isn't due, due until next March. And before then, there's a lot of phone calls that are going around, which are not being done in a transparent manner. And you have all these ETF issuers like Vanek, and I think we have some authority to speak on this matter because we were the first TradFi manager to first file for a physically-backed ETF in 2017. And we spent the last six years trying to figure out what exactly are the conditions that the regulator is looking for that will allow for the approval of such a product. Those conditions have not been laid out in any systematic way, and we're going to see the result of this lawsuit, Grayscale versus the SEC, which we think will reveal that the SEC has been acting in an arbitrary and capricious manner in denying them. Whether or not that leads to an immediate approval, we'll have to see, but we have until next uh, March to uh, get the answer to your question. All right, so um, I guess you, you, you're putting this at President Biden's uh, on President Biden's desk. But if we take it a level lower, right, Gary Gensler um, seems to be the one that's holding things back, at least from from our perspective. Is that wrong? 
No. At the SEC because he has recently, or the SEC has recently, I'm going to say lost a case in in the Ripple um, trial, although I think they might claim that they partially won, right? Because the judge declared Ripple to be a, a security when it was marketed to a bunch of institutions, but not a security when it was sold um, to, I guess, retail investors on an exchange. Is that maybe the first crack in the SEC's, you know, wall against crypto? I think it very well could be. And there have been multiple examples in the last two decades of SEC chairs who have had to step down after an embarrassing loss, like, um, you know, Bloomberg's former board member, Arthur Levitt, comes to mind. Um, So uh, there's also a great history of um, a a change in leadership at these agencies ahead of an election, which we have next year as well. So my personal call is that Gensler will be gone before the next election, and that will facilitate a change in policy here. But there's a lot of steps between uh, here and there. Is there a physically traded ETF, uh, Bitcoin ETF in Canada? Yes, Canada, okay. Europe, okay, uh, so multiple jurisdictions just have approved. focus on Canada. What have we learned? What have we observed about the pros and cons of that that maybe the SEC could learn from maybe? There have been no cons because uh, ETFs are a, a time-tested, well-regulated, liquid, and cost-effective way to Are they treated as hold. security in Canada? Yes. Okay. And does here in the, the US, ETF is not the Bitcoin underlying. It, okay, right. So the ETF is not the Bitcoin. Can that structure and and that's a structure that the SEC is not comfortable with here. Correct. They object to the uh, well. They have a number of objections, yep. and as I said, each one of them has kind of been proven to be logically incoherent. But we're stuck in this mandate, whether it's coming from the president, whether it's coming from Gensler. All right. You know, so what does knows? this all mean for um, innovation in crypto in the U.S.? My concern, if I, if I were in senior political levels, it would be, I want to make sure that whatever this crypto thing evolves into, I want the U.S. to be a leader. And now I feel like, just knowing what I know, that perhaps we're not going to take a leadership position because we don't have a well-defined regulatory framework. Whether you like it or not, it doesn't seem like we have a one. Is there a risk that the U.S. maybe is not a leader in this business? That's definitely uh, the path of direction. So we can we can track the number of developers who are working on these open source blockchains, and we can track them by country. And what we can see is that the U.S. is losing market share of crypto developers. So the innovators are looking to work elsewhere. The other thing that we can see is that stable coins like USDC, which is the Coinbase Circle JV, are losing market share to Tether, which is an offshore, uh, less regulated model on the same uh, on the same. Now I feel like a, asking a political question. Should Americans care, and if so, why? Americans should care because every uh, currency um, has... um, There's been no currency that has been the global store of value for multiple centuries. And at some point, the world is looking for an alternative. And here you have uh, a decentralized money where the creation schedule is transparent. And that's very different from what's happening with the Federal Reserve. So we can see what's going on in Argentina. I don't, I don't want the dollar to be at risk if I'm President Biden or anybody. I think what Matt's saying is that the dollar is at risk. So even though you don't like it, we need right. to prepare for the reality that that um, turns okay. around. That's it. We're still a long way off from that, right? Um, I wanna, wanted to ask you about other tokens because other than Bitcoin, you know, people may know Ether, but beyond that, they don't really. I mean, Dogecoin, right? What else is serious and you think really important in crypto that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, so uh, there are a number of smart contract 
protocols. These are blockchain software that enable more complex transactions than Bitcoin can enable. So with Bitcoin, it's just very difficult to program in a bunch of if-then conditions and make your Bitcoin move around programmatically. Uh, with Ethereum, uh, because of the architecture of the blockchain, that is possible. Uh, and there are you know, a handful of similar layer one smart contract platforms to Ethereum. Uh, we're thinking of like a Solana, uh, which uh, make different trade-offs on decentralization and speed. Uh, the, the history of these digital platforms is that they tend to be winner-take-all businesses. We're seeing that in Web2, Amazon, Google, etc. So one of the big challenges for digital investors right now is balancing those winner-take-all characteristics of these digital platforms with the extreme price disparity year-to-date. Because year-to-date, Bitcoin and ETH are outperforming. Part of the reason why they're outperforming is because of the regulators coming down on all these other mm-hmm. innovative platforms. The more that the regulator cracks down, the greater these winner-take-all characteristics will be, the faster they will be. In a way, it's government picking winners. We don't want that. We want innovation to win out. Sounds reasonable to me. Matt Siegel, thanks so much for joining us here. Matt Siegel, he's head of digital asset research uh, for at Van Neck. He's joining, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers uh, studio. Just looking at uh, Bitcoin because it's on my monitor for, for whatever reason. Uh, it's up six tenths of 1% here, 29581 uh, for Bitcoin. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, uh, Matthew Palazzoli. He's a senior insurance analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. We've been Whenever about I see this guy, I know that a disaster has happened. happened. Bad exactly. Bad things have happened. So we call on Matthew Palazzola. So Matthew, we've seen the destruction uh, in Bermuda, the loss of life. It's just uh, horrific, uh, some of the images that, that we saw. Um, from the insurance perspective, what are you hearing from the companies as to perhaps exposure and all that type of thing? Right. So nothing yet from the company specifically, but okay. we're looking at uh, industry data, data from the ground. Um, in these cases, you'll hear about economic losses first. So we're hearing numbers like five, six. I, can, I just saw one for $8 billion of okay. economic damages. What's but, that actually? So, so that could be lost wages. That okay. could be it, it, it encompasses insured values, but insured values would be much less. Okay. So it could be even half of that. So th- the work that I'm doing now is kind of coming around low single digit billions for the insurance companies, which is a pretty manageable number. Right. So, um, but the thing is, these payouts are probably going to get bigger and bigger every year, right? Not just what's happening in Hawaii, not just, you know, what. Uh, the El Nino's brought, but every year did natural disaster payouts climb higher and higher? That has been happening, right? Yeah. So it was thought of years ago that $100 billion in insured losses was something we'd never see. And now we've seen it for several years. So uh, this this year so far is running above average for catastrophe losses. It's Climate change is kind of the big boogeyman in the whole thing. No one's saying it's not happening, but the insurance companies will tell you that a lot of this is driven by um, density of population, building in catastrophe-prone areas. It's kind of moral hazard where we keep building, we keep rebuilding, and you know the cycle goes on and on. So it's not all climate change. I wrote down the stat I did want to tell you, though. Uh, this is according to a catastrophe modeling company. They said, over the past century, Hawaii, uh, the average burning there has increased 400 percent 
due to man-made factors. So obviously something's happening. There's, I also thought this was interesting. There's a non-native grass species that was introduced to Hawaii, which actually is feeding a lot of this because right. it's uh, fire prone. Right. So, I mean, there's all kinds of drivers here. Going to that issue of the kind of the moral hazard, I mean, a hurricane comes along, hits take your place, Florida, North Carolina, South, you know, wherever it hits, wipes out a part of the coast. The insurance people, guys pay up and people build houses right back well, there again. Yeah, forget about that. I'll take that to my Jersey Shore. <laughs> Super sore Sandy. You go down to Maniloking, which have some of the nicest homes on the Jersey Shore. They have rebuilt monster homes. And then the next lot, for whatever reason, completely blank. Nothing's been rebuilt. So I don't know if there's a money's held up with the family or whatever. But is that person who rebuilt the monster house again, is he or she getting insured? Look, depending on the, the monstrosity of the house, may you might not be insured. I yeah, mean, my experience you know. with Chubb is after you take a big hit, they don't come back. Yeah, so I mean, if, if you have enough money where you built that house on your own, you don't have a mortgage, you don't have anything, I guess theoretically you could not have insurance. What's happening, though, in these states is a lot of it's falling on the state. So when you can't get insurance Florida. in Florida, in California, there's a state fund that you get insurance from. So ultimately it comes back to the taxpayer. So it's not, the insurance companies are, have wised up. They don't just keep paying out. They right. will step back and drop these people. But what happens is... Or charge you know, higher rates. They'll definitely charge higher yeah. rates. Or they'll, they'll charge you such a high rate that you'll go to the state fund. Um, Does the state fund lose money? Hand over fist. <laughs> I see. And so who funds that? We do. You. We okay, do. okay. Yeah. You guys. Very good. And, but that's, again, at some point, again, my good friends at the Jersey Shore, I'm just picking on them because that, 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 that's where I crib these days. I mean, I, I don't feel like they should be insured i mean if it's given what's happened but i guess it's up to the companies and if maybe they can de decline ha to have insurance right I, this question may be beyond the scope of matthew powell's no 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 this is <laughs> yeah. right down i don't know <laughs> we could get the situation in here from jersey shore maybe you yeah. know but um no i mean like i said you, you if you have a mortgage on your property you need yep. you have to have insurance yes uh and that's the, the right thing the okay. state is not going to let people be completely unhappy and not have insurance and it be too expensive. So that's where this kind of comes in. And right. people don't realize that the taxpayers are ending up funding this. It's also, it's not the Jersey Shore that takes the big losses, right? It's no, Florida. It's Florida. Yeah, it's yeah. Florida and it's California. It's yep. Texas to some degree. I mean, we had Sandy. That was kind of an, you know, Once an odd-off yep. event. Right. But, I mean, we also had last, was I don't remember if it was last year, where we had these significant rain events yep. repeatedly. And it was the most rain ever. And then the next week, it was the most rain ever again in you know the tri-state area. So it is happening. All right. Here. So we're August fourteenth here. What's the hurricane call this year? I mean, so far I don't recall nothing big is hit here, has it? So it hasn't been. It started off quick and, and hot, right? right? And I was pretty worried that it was going to be above average season. Uh, so you've got two two countervailing forces. You've got the El Nino effect, which you brought up before. That actually suppresses hurricane activity okay. in the Atlantic. Is that just wind blowing somewhere? It's a hot current, right? Hot Essentially. I'm, I'm yeah, just yeah. an amateur meteorologist, right. so you know I have to take a step back and say, yes, it's basically just winds moving, right? Uh, that usually suppresses hurricane activity here, but then you have these record sea surface temperatures which feed hurricane activity. So this has netted itself out to be, f from the forecasts, forecasted to be an above average season, but we haven't seen that much yet. The peak is about mid-September. 
By the way, El Nino is, uh, it is a warm current of water, or ocean water, that develops in the central and east-central equatorial Pacific. And do you uh, know the opposite? Uh, La Nina. La Nina, the girl. Right. So right. The, El Nino <laughs> the is the boy, way. La Nina yeah. is the and girl. And we've been in La Nina for a while, which is actually fed hurricane activity. All right, the S&P 500 property and casualty insurance sub-index down 5% this year. Yeah, Why? so insurance companies suffered from, I think, the, the risk-on environment in the beginning of the year, the defensive stocks, they kind of sell off with, with that rotation. Uh, I, I think unfairly they suffered with the bank turmoil. They weren't really exposed. Another concern is commercial real estate. I mean, the concern exposure. there is that they hold a lot of long-term, uh, for example, treasuries, you know, and maybe they haven't marked to market either. So, so they did that last year. That was a big impact. So yeah. they still do. That's it's kind of reversing this year. They have they hold a lot of commercial real estate, uh, more specifically, maybe the life insurance companies. We did analysis on that. It seemed to be very manageable exposure for them. In, in a bad case, it hasn't really reared its head. But I think those things were kind of dragging them down. And uh, otherwise, how are they doing? making returns because that's the idea right we all put in our premiums and then they take that money and they go invest it and hopefully they make more than they lose on these natural disasters exactly so fundamentals are good they've been you know earning we're at it could be peak roes for this pricing cycle could be this year or next year typically valuations peak before the roes so if it's this year then maybe they peaked already but it could be next year are there any hot you know what are the best managed insurance companies that you cover um, I love Chubb, right? It's it's the biggest, and it's still growing a lot. It, Evan Greenberg's the CEO. I mean, of this giant company, and he kind of knows all the ins and out details. Uh, you know, they they have the best commercial underwriting of their peer group, and they're the biggest one. So I, I mean, I, I love Chubb's management and uh, strategy. They won't take me. They won't take me as a client. They wouldn't take you? Of course. They did once, but I guess too many losses. Too many claims. <laughs> yeah, like a motorcycle? There's no way a I'm reading you insurance. motorcycle accident may have been a part of that. that may have been yeah. Did you have your Picasso in the basement when it flooded? No. no, no I, I didn't have any really big problems. Just I think there was a small issue with the Porsche 911 and... And the motorcycle accident. The motorcycle accident yeah. and the jumping out of planes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, what's the area of insurance that you, that you just are staying away from it right right now in your space? Staying away from. Um, so you know what's interesting? Cyber insurance, right? Cyber, Cyber insurance. insurance is a big growing uh, line of business. A lot of companies are getting into it. Um, they've been very cautious on it. But you don't know what you're underwriting. And I yeah. think the world is not getting any more, any, it's not getting any less risky, right? right? And it's getting more risky, and these are things that, that companies don't know about. So I'd be a little wary of someone who's talking about growing a lot in cyber insurance right now. All right, Matt. Uh, good to have you in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Matthew Palazzola, he's a senior analyst covering all uh, the property and casualty insurance for Bloomberg Intelligence. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Jay Vijayan, he is the founder and CEO of Techion, uh, and he was the former chief uh, information officer at Tesla, uh, so let's talk a little bit what's happening in the EV space. Jay, thanks so much for joining us here. First, let's just start off real quick. Tell us what you guys are doing at Techion. Hey, Paul. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me here. Um, 
They're looking forward to, the, to our conversation. Uh, yeah, at Techion, um, as you know, the automotive industry is going through some major trends, everything from EV to autonomous vehicles, from uh, you know, selling models. Um, Techion is right in the center. So we've created a platform to bring together the major stakeholders in one seamless um, and technology platform. Uh, manufacturers, uh, the retailers, the ecosystem players, be it software or be it functional industry players like insurance providers, lenders, and others. And then, of course, the beneficiary is the consumer. So, end of the day, the consumer really needs to get what they are looking for in terms of their automotive buying experience. We are delivering that through the technology as an operating platform for retailers, manufacturers, and then the participants are the industry software ecosystem players. So give us a sense, Jay. I mean, if I'm a, I mean, Tesla has obviously a different distribution model, does not rely uh, on dealerships, kind of goes direct to consumer. How do you think the, uh, the original OEMs, the Fords, the GMs of the world, the Volkswagens of the world, how do you think, or how do you think they should make this evolution to, to selling these electric vehicles? Great question. I know it's a, I, would, I don't know if I should say it's a trillion dollar question, right? So the, the, the way we see it, we are deep into the industry. Um, Techion works with uh, you know, many of the retailers. In fact, the world's largest automotive retailer runs on Techion and we work with multiple manufacturers as well. So the bottom line is, as you know, trends go through different phases and they go through a big hype phase where everything is like, oh, for example, I can give you a simple example. Before COVID, um, everyone said the car ownership is going away. And after COVID, we all realized it doesn't gone away. People are still buying cars. Um, now, the other trend is people are thinking about everything will go online. People will buy cars online 100%. Um, I don't ever see that happening for the same reason why, you know, Tesla is still opening retail stores, Apple is still opening retail stores. What consumers are looking for, again, putting myself in consumer shoes, the way I shop versus the way my 20-year-old daughter shops uh, for cars versus my wife shops for cars would be different. What consumers are looking for is give me the choice, give me the experience, seamless experience, doesn't matter how I choose to shop. If I you know, want to do it online, majority of the you know, tasks which I don't like, which is signing documents or negotiating price, but there are, there are specific tasks I want to do it in person, like experiencing the product itself, test driving, like I walk into an Apple store and touch and feel my iPhone or a Mac. I think that is the fundamental. So what I see the industry evolving is the retail model not going away, but the business will evolve to provide the seamless experience for consumers, be it they start at a manufacturer website or they start shopping at a retailer website, today the experience is disconnected. That's exactly what we are solving from Techion perspective. Why not use that as an advantage? Because consumers need to go into a retail location to shop. So Jay, car or whatever. Yeah. Please. What are you finding from some of these existing OEMs? Do they have that mindset to be flexible about using technology maybe in ways they haven't done it before number one are they flexible number two are they willing to make whatever investment is required yeah you see a full spectrum um some of them are quite flexible want to do it and didn't have a very clear path to do it 
And I think fortunately, I think Techion is helping because as you know, we are a new generation company started in 2016. So most modern tech platform from a cloud native versus also using machine learning and AI inherently part of the platforms. It was not an afterthought where we, we went ahead and built something like that. So now we are helping that. And you see there are other spectrum where not a lot of flexibility is there. There is willingness from the you know um, senior management at the working level, there is not enough incentive or push to go change. So we see a full spectrum of uh, automotive manufacturers willing to change. I Again, we all know the answer is anyone who's truly changing will continue to be in the middle or be in the front in some cases. And anyone who's not changing will be left behind over a period of time. So Jay, just give us a sense of what product or what service that you guys at Techion provide, say a dealer or the OEM dealer relationship that's proving, I guess, the most popular at the moment. Absolutely. Um, there are, you know, two, so three, we have a, three offerings, retail cloud, all interconnected. Retail cloud is for retailers, runs the entire retail operations of retailer. Everything, you know, if you look at from selling cars online, shopping experience, selling cars online, uh, customer engagement, selling cars in store, and the complete back office, if you would call it as a ERP, like general ledger, AP, AR, running their entire business and payments because it needs to come together to give the best experience. So that's automotive retail cloud, seamlessly connected to the manufacturer's backend system. So to track vehicle inventory, to order parts and receive it seamlessly, have visibility. And then we have enterprise cloud, which is focused as an e-commerce engine for manufacturers, but having a seamless connection to its dealers. So we have some of the largest manufacturers um, in the world using Techion. Like for example, General Motors is our customer. Um, so we, we have a white labeled platform for them to sell their EVs, but seamlessly really connecting to their dealers as well. So that's retail cloud. The last one is we need to bring the ecosystem together. Um, partner cloud where we have technology APIs and you have like you know insurance providers, lenders. So if you you know, sell a car, you need to sell an insurance. So how do you make that process simple and easy? So how do you bring the providers through technology, seamlessly exchanging data and securely right. doing it? All right, fascinating stuff. I mean, it's a, it's an industry that is evolving uh, with the times and with the technology. Uh, and you kind of think about the whole stack there. Jay Vijayan uh, is the founder and CEO of Techion, joining us here to talk to us about EVs and how you kind of bring it all together from the OEM manufacturer all right down through the dealer and to the consumer. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc.
Listen wherever you get your podcasts.